Welcome to Learn Me Right. We're here today with Professor Lindy Wilmot. Thank you so much, Lindy, for being involved with the podcast. Very pleased to be here with you today, Ruthie and Sinead. Can we start by you just telling us a little bit about your current role at QUT? Sure. I'm a Professor of Law in the Faculty of Business at Law and Law at QUT. Perfect. Thank you. Welcome, Lindy. I have some rapid fire questions for you. What sure. are your pronouns? She, her. Your highlight of the year so far? Right. Well, that would have to be uh, my husband and I decided to have a bit of a tree change and we moved. So we moved to a place uh, which has a fair bit of land. So we've got chickens and we've got birds and we've got ducks. So that's probably been the highlight of our year so far. I'm assuming it's a highlight because you're not afraid of chickens. Now I'm not afraid of chickens, but we've had a few close calls where our dogs have mingled with the chickens when the chickens have been free ranging and accidentally a door has been left open and that's been a bit exciting because um, they don't get along so well, chickens and dogs. <laughs> As it happens. I love the word mingling. <laughs> as if chickens and dogs just mingle like they network. <laughs> Not so successfully as it happens. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, your coffee order. Now, this sounds a bit simple, I know, but it is cappuccino. Well, as long as you're not what um, my dear friend Ruthie likes, which is instant coffee, I think we can we can pass with a cappuccino. I'm sorry about that, but I also quite like Nescafe. And that's the coffee. end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lindy. <laughs> and last but not least, what would you sing at karaoke? Well, I don't do karaoke because I cannot sing, but if I could, it would be Abba's Super Trooper. Oh. And my favourite version of Super Trooper is from the Abba movie with uh, Meryl Streep. I kind of love that particular scene. Oh, I couldn't agree more. What a wonderful answer. And you know what? I think we just might have to convince you, Lindy, to, to come to karaoke and do that. That would just be the highlight of my year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lindy. That was that was wonderful. So in terms of the more substantive part of our podcast today, we've got a couple of questions for you. The first one is, what is your sort of current research interest or particular area of end of life law that you're going to talk to us about today? Sure. So my current research interest is voluntary assisted dying. And with all of the colleagues that we have in the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at QUT, uh, I do do a lot of research in that area. But what I wanted to talk about today was a little bit about the history of law reform of voluntary assisted dying in Australia. Um, so just a bit of context, uh, there have been attempts to reform the law on VAD for a long, long time now, ever since 1993. And for a long time, those attempts were unsuccessful except in the Northern Territory, which was quickly overturned. But from uh, 2016, all of the states passed the laws. So my colleagues and I have looked at why was it so difficult to pass the laws in the first couple of decades, but then all states passed within five years of each other. 
That is so interesting. I actually did not know that. Um, I knew that they'd made some attempts, but I didn't know, I sort of see now that it was just sort of all of a sudden. So could you give us a bit more of an explanation of maybe what you found, why that appeared to be so? Sure. So the first bit of research that we did, and, and I did this with my colleague, Professor Ben White, and Dr. Kelly Purser, Dr. Andy McGee, and also Chris Stackpool, who was a research assistant with us at the time in the law school. We looked at VAD attempts, so attempts to pass voluntary assisted dying laws from the beginning, which was mid-1993, up until the end of 2015. So at that time, there had been 51 attempts to pass voluntary assisted dying laws, and only one of those had been successful, and that was in the Northern Territory in 1995. So we had a close look at all of those attempts and um, some of the political context around it, um, also the states which had tried to pass the laws, and we also tried to identify which of those 51 pieces of legislation uh, went close to passing. So there are a lot of attempts which didn't get any support at all virtually, but some were much closer when they went to Parliament. So we had a close look at those seven bills just to try and figure out why did they get closer to passing than the others. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about the, the research. That's that's super interesting. And I guess we would love to know, what did you find out about those particular seven? Why were they closer to passing than others? Well, yeah, we were really trying to work out why they were, and we weren't entirely sure that there was a good explanation. But what was interesting, of those seven, one bill was the Northern Territory, which passed. One was in Tasmania. And five, that doesn't add up, does it? Four. Five? Yeah, five. <laughs> that did add up. Uh, were from South Australia. So they are the smaller states. Um, and whether that had something to do with it or not, we don't know. We can't work out. But we do recall that in South Australia, the advocacy group was very, very strong there. So maybe the, the private advocacy of a group of people have something to do with it. Um, the other thing which was interesting is that of those 51 attempts, none were from Queensland. So there are a whole bunch from South Australia and dotted around the other states and territories, uh, but not from, um, not from Queensland. So 100% success rate from Queensland then. <laughs> Well, well, 100% failure rate, Ruthie. True, true. Lindy, for those who might not be familiar with the background of the Northern Territory law, can you explain why that was passed but then overturned? How did that happen? Sure. So the Northern Territory law was passed in 1995, but it was only in existence for a very short time, about nine to ten months. Um and the reason it was passed is that they had um, a very strong advocate by Marshall Perron, who was the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory at the time. Um, this was an issue that was very close to his heart. And I think so he could 
properly campaign and advocate for it, he actually stood back as chief minister so he could do that advocacy. Um, and it was the first legislation to pass in the world, which is quite remarkable, uh, a very progressive bill coming out of the Northern Territory uh, was surprising, but it happened. Um, but then because it's a territory law under the Commonwealth Constitution, the Commonwealth has the constitutional power to overturn any territory law. So that could be Northern Territory or the Australian Capital Territory. Now, it rarely, rarely does this, but this was political. And at the time we had a conservative government and they were very opposed to voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia as it was commonly known back then. And uh, Kevin Andrews actually tabled a bill and that bill passed and that prohibited territories from passing euthanasia laws. So that meant that that legislation in Northern Territory was only short-lived. But fortunately, just a bit of a postscript to that, um, there has been legislation since then and relatively recently passed in the Commonwealth, in the Commonwealth Parliament, overturning that Kevin Andrews law. So now the ACT and the Northern Territory are free to pass voluntary assisted dying laws if they so choose. Thanks, Lindy. That was, that was an excellent overview. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that law has recently changed. So maybe this is a good segue into the current era of voluntary sister dying laws and some of those, um, well, all of the states that have passed laws. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So who was first and, and what did those five years look like? Sure, happy to. So in 2016, um, the law reform process started and Victoria was the first state to pass legislation and that legislation was ultimately passed in 2017 and it was called the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act. And then within the next five years, the other states, all of the other states passed laws. So Western Australia was next in 2017, uh, 2019 and then Queensland, South Australia and Tasmania in 2021 and New South Wales was last, last year in 2022. So I think it's interesting to see uh, the process uh, that, that occurred in Victoria because I think that had a big um, implication for the actual laws being passed. And what happened in Victoria was that there was rather a long process of reform. So it started with a parliamentary committee looking at what the current laws were. And they did a really thorough review of what was currently happening in Victoria. And that included the fact that there was a lot of bad deaths. And they listened to a whole lot of personal stories by people giving evidence to the committee that people were dying in circumstances which were dreadful. They also heard evidence um, from the coroner that some people were taking their own lives when they had been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I think that was very persuasive to the Victorian Parliamentary Committee. And they ultimately said the status quo just can't go on because end of life is not happening well here. 
So they recommended that voluntary assisted dying laws be introduced. So the next step in the process after that very long parliamentary review was that the Daniel Andrews government then said, okay, we're going to enact voluntary assisted dying laws. So what should those laws look like? They then established a ministerial advisory panel, which was headed by Professor Brian Owler, and they drafted what they thought the laws should look like. And that was the basis of the laws that were ultimately debated in Victorian Parliament. So there was some change from what they recommended, but they certainly formed the, uh, the basis of the laws that were ultimately enacted in Victoria. And although there has been some modification of that Victorian model in the other states, largely the Australian model is very similar, a very highly regulated model. So I think, going back to your question, Ruthie, I think the reason why it was successful in Victoria, there's probably a few reasons, but one of them was the government backed this whole process. So in those 51 attempts that I mentioned before, it was more um, in, independent MPs or a member of the Greens Party or a member of the, the Australian Democrats putting down a private member's bill and seeing what happened, whereas this was a much more, um, uh, a much bigger process, government-backed, highly resourced. So that parliamentary committee, for example, members of that committee got to travel overseas look at those jurisdictions which had had euthanasia for many, many years, um, and then they produced sort of a, a very good report. So there were a lot of resources put behind this, and that was different. Um, the other thing is the extensive public consultation. So the parliamentary committee took lots and lots of evidence from lots of people and lots of body groups, um, including, as I mentioned, personal stories, uh, which were were very persuasive. Um, probably another thing which was influential in Victoria, I think, is that there were some very um, high profile and probably charismatic people who were backing reform, which hadn't happened in the past to the same extent. So you, I mentioned Brian Owler, who headed up the ministerial advisory panel. He was a former neurosurgeon. He was a former head of the Australian Medical Association, so he had a lot of clout. Um, Daniel Andrews supported. He was the Premier. Um, I think he was riding high then politically, um, so he had a lot of popularity and clout. And Andrew Denton was also at that time really high profile and pushing for support of voluntary assisted dying uh, laws. He had a organisation Go Gentle and he did a series of podcasts which again had personal stories of bad deaths. Um, so I think really the time had come in Victoria, high public support and I think it was a function of all of, all of those things operating together that, that made change happen in Victoria. And then after the laws were in place in Victoria and the sky hadn't fallen in, then I think the other states just followed suit. Now, I am aware <laughs> by proximal location and personal relationship that you had a little bit to do with the Queensland one. 
<laughs> just a wee bit. <laughs> I'm definitely understating that. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about your involvement in the, um, the Queensland legislative reform? <laughs> sure. I think you did overstate it a little bit, Janae, <laughs> but thank you. Um, well, with my colleague, uh, ben White, we had um, some input into the reform processes around the place because we had um, done so much research in the area of euthanasia and we had a close interest and wrote about the Victorian reform process. Um, so we knew very well the Victorian legislation. So, for example, with um, the WA, they had a ministerial expert panel. We were able to talk to them about our views about the Victorian legislation. Um, and then when it came to Queensland's um, Queensland's reform process, Ben and I drafted um, a model, a voluntary assisted dying uh, bill, which we thought reflected important values that should govern voluntary assisted dying. And we tabled that when the Queensland Parliamentary Committee were considering reform. So we tabled that review and we appeared a couple of times before parliamentary committees where we talked more about why we thought that model bill perhaps had advantages over the Victorian model. And in Queensland, what happened, the Parliamentary Committee actually recommended that the bill that we proposed be enacted. And what happened then, the government, the Queensland government said, yes, we want to pass laws, but we will engage the Queensland Law Reform Commission to review the area and make recommendations about the legislation. So Ben and I made submissions to the Queensland Law Reform Commission. We had a couple of meetings with them um, where we talked about the reforms that we thought were needed to the Victorian model to improve that model. Um, and I'm delighted to say Queensland Law Reform Commission really took an evidence-based approach to reform. So they looked at all of the evidence that was available, both from overseas and also emerging out of Victoria. And I personally think they really improved the Victorian model um, in a couple of quite significant ways by actually engaging with the available evidence. And I know, Lindy, some of that evidence was from you and Ben and, and other colleagues as well, involving um, interviews with doctors who were actually involved in the process and some of the barriers that they encountered. Would it be OK just to mention a couple of those barriers that sort of came out in that evidence and that might have influenced some reform in other states? Yeah, of course. Happy to. So um, one of the things that the doctors were saying was <clears throat> that sometimes it's hard to get evidence of residency. And just to give a bit of background, uh, there are very, very tight criteria about eligibility for voluntary assisted dying. So for example, if you live in Victoria um, you, and you're seeking voluntary assisted dying in Victoria, one of the eligibility criterion is that you um, must show you're a Victorian resident and have been resident there for 12 months. Now, we interviewed 32 Victorian doctors who had been involved with the voluntary assisted dying system in the first 12 months of its operation. And doctors were telling us that sometimes when people are at the end of life, they throw out a whole lot of stuff. And sometimes they can't actually prove that they're a resident of Victoria 
or sometimes even Australian citizen. So they might have been um, an Australian citizen. Uh, sorry, they might have been resident in Australia for a very long time, but not an Australian citizen, and they have been unable to prove their Australian residency or their Victorian residence for 12 months because they're two requirements. Um, they throw out all their stuff because they're preparing to die and they're getting all of their affairs in order. So in Queensland, what they did is that they said, yes, you still have to be an Australian citizen or permanent resident. You still have to be a Queensland resident for 12 months. But they also uh, inserted in the legislation a provision to grant exemption. So if a person can't provide evidence of those things, then they can demonstrate in another way a close connection to the state. So it just made it a bit easier for people to be able to prove um, that they are eligible. So for people who are at the end of the end of life, they're very sick. Um, it's just to make the process that little bit easier for them. They still have to be terminally ill, but that requirement didn't have to be satisfied. Um, and a, a second example, I guess, is that in the Victorian legislation, they have a provision which prohibits a health professional from initiating a conversation about voluntary assisted dying with their patients. Now, you understand the reason behind that. Uh, the Parliament, the Victorian Parliament said the reason this is important is to stop coercion. So a, a doctor can't suggest voluntary assisted dying to a patient because that could be seen as coercion. So there's that prohibition. Now, what the doctors were telling us in the interviews is that's problematic because not everyone knows about voluntary assisted dying uh, as an option or an end-of-life choice. So the more highly educated people might. Um, so doctors felt that this could disadvantage people, especially people with English as a second language um, and potentially migrants may not know about it um, and poor educated people may not know about it. And some doctors felt very uncomfortable thinking this person may well be wanting to consider this as an option, but they don't know about it and I'd like to be able to tell them, but I can't. So... WA actually, as well as Queensland, changed the law in that regard. So um, the health professional can raise voluntary assisted dying, and the law varies slightly in terms of the, the technical aspects of this, can raise it, provided they um, also raise other end-of-life options as well. So in that sense, there's a safeguard, so the doctor doesn't look as though they're suggesting it, they're just giving it as one of the end-of-life options. I'm really starting to see how um, just like not storytelling, but talking with people with actual experience of this process has had so much of an impact on like law reform in Australia. And it's so like nice to hear. I was just really struck by the fact at the start that you said it's people's stories that got this movement going. And it just makes me realise that people have so much more power than they think they do in these sort of spaces. So it's so exciting to see first that these like patients want people who were having an awful time and their family members who were recounting that, they started this process, but then by actually talking to doctors, we bettered the process. So people have just so much more impact than they think they do. 
absolutely agree. And I might talk about that more in my, my little <laughs> podcast in this series. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And, and Lindy, one of the questions that we usually ask is um, what can sort of governments or law or policy do? But I think you've already really covered that and encapsulated that today, um, that it's really important to listen to evidence. It's really important to listen to people's stories and to let that inform law reform. So that's that's really, really come through in the podcast. That, that's good. And, and yes, absolutely. I do think those personal stories were so important in uh, facilitating reform, uh, both to the parliamentary committees, the advisory panels, and also in Andrew Denton's Better Off Dead podcast. It became really clear that, that the current law wasn't working. So then it was... Um, it was incumbent upon politicians to fix the framework to make sure that that suffering did not occur. And, and I think there's, I don't think the story has finished with voluntary assisted dying regulation either. And I think there's potentially more that individuals and the general public can do. And I don't know if you guys saw it, but the 7.30 program during the week, there was a really good piece. I thought it was very balanced on voluntary assisted dying. And one of the cases there was a woman who had lost her husband to Alzheimer's. Um, and in the words of the, the widow, she said it was a really, I think she used the word pitiful death. And they showed very confronting images of this chap as he was dying in his last couple of days. He was clearly suffering. And the widow had said she'd been, he'd been suffering for a long time. And what the widow was suggesting was there should be some way that voluntary assisted dying was available to a person who was suffering in that way. Um, that's a very controversial proposition. Um, and it was something that was considered to a greater or lesser extent in all of the reviews in Australian states. And each state landed in a situation where to have voluntary assisted dying, the person seeking it must have decision-making capacity. And there are a range of reasons for that. Uh, but of course, one of them is to ensure that that decision is their voluntary choice. There's another um, argument that a person, while they still have decision-making capacity, should be able to put in an advanced health directive that they want assistance to die if they get to a particular stage. Uh, for example, it could be that they can't recognise um, their family. They might want their lives to end. Now, that's not on the political agenda anywhere that I'm aware of in Australia. But if enough people, you know, members of the public think that's important, um, then perhaps that will become on the political agenda at some point. So if that's something that's important to individuals, you know, they have the option of, of shouting out and saying that and contacting politicians and all the things that you research about, Ruthie, in your PhD about how individuals can really make a difference and help shape the law. So I, I think there's still further to, to go in the voluntary assisted dying debate. But what you're saying is we did it once, we can do it again if that's what we want to do. I agree. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we can listen to those stories and we can shape shape what we think the law should be. So that that's really fantastic, Lindy. And um, highlight the, a question that we we ask at the end of each podcast, and we've, you've sort of already answered it um, for us here. But you know, what does what does an everyday person need to know? And I think 
you really emphasize that everyday people's voices are really critical. So that's a that's a great note for us to end on, I think. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lindy. That was just that was such an interesting history, but also I liked that little chapter that we're not done yet. So <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> well, thank you, Brad. It's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners.